they always say that day one is for the athletes and day two is for the decathletes <laughs> because day one is more about power output and day two is more about rhythm. Mesdames et messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. fans of Shuklistan and welcome to another episode of Keep the Flame Alive, the podcast for fans of the Olympics and Paralympics. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello. How are you today? I'm doing okay. How are you doing? Doing well, as well as I can in the snow and the cold. I know. <laughs> I need my cross-country skis. We can have our own set of multi-event sports going on right now with the snow and the cold. Sliding down the driveway. <laughs> Traversing the yard, <laughs> taking the dog out at night in the cold. Right. Shoveling the garbage cans out, shoveling the garbage cans in. Do you have to shovel out your mailbox? Do no, you I do. Well, we have to shovel the driveway because that's where the mailbox is. We have is. a rural route, and so we have to actually shovel out the mailbox. Oh, man. And you got to do that quick. I know, or they just are like throwing it on the driveway. Like, sorry, can't get your mailbox. Let me just hurl it like a newspaper in the old days. Uh, before we get to today's show, the Shukflistan Ministry of Communications has asked us to tell you that it highly recommends that you subscribe to our free e-newsletter, the Shukflistan Compass. You can do so at our website, flamealivepod.com, and the sign-up is at the bottom of the page. This week, we are talking decathlon and heptathlon because, you know, the IOC likes to tout its gender equity initiatives. And while that means they've been working on having an equal number of men and women at the games, that doesn't really mean full equity in terms of events and sports. So today we're talking with one of the people that's working on that latter type of equality, Jordan Gray. Jordan is a female decathlete, and you might know that the decathlon at the Olympics is only for men, but... There are women out there who do do decathlon, and they would like to see it included at the Olympics. Jordan also has competed in the heptathlon, which is the seven-sport, I won't say version of the decathlon, we'll get into that in the interview, but that's kind of the women's answer to the decathlon on the Olympic program. Jordan breaks down how the decathlon and heptathlon work and talks with us about her work with LetWomenDecathlon.org. Take a listen. Jordan, thank you so much for joining us today to talk about decathlon and heptathlon, and we'll get into why we're talking about both of those events. Let's talk first about how the decathlon and the heptathlon work. Let's start with the decathlon 10 events. What are they? Yeah, so the 10 events by category are the 100-meter dash, the 100-meter hurdles, the 400-meter and the 1500. Those are the four running events that you have. The three jumping events are the long jump, the pole vault, and the high jump. And the three throwing events are the discus, the shot put, and the javelin. So it's a two-day competition. How are they organized then? Yeah, so there's obviously an order of events that they typically stick with. There's actually a women's order 
And the women's order is different than the men's order, even though it's almost never contested in the women's order. Let me pull up the men's order and the women's order. So they always say that day one is for the athletes and day two is for the decathletes <laughs> because day one is more about power output and day two is more about rhythm. And so for the decathlon, you go 100 meter dash, then the long jump, then the shot put, then the high jump, and then the 400 meter. And then that's the end of day one. And then day two, you come back with the 100 hurdles, discus, pole vault, javelin, and the 1500. And that's the men's order. That's the traditional order. And honestly, there haven't been many women's orders even contested. It was an idea that was brought up. Um, so that way, if they ever did incorporate it in larger meets, hopefully the women's and the men's could run at the same time. But frankly, it's a terrible order and nobody likes it. And um, you can run the men's and the women's at the same time in the traditional order, um, at least at the meet I've been at, and there's no problems. So it's a very interesting debate, but that is the traditional order and that's the way I've always done them. And the women's order is? Terrible. Let me pull it up. It is the 100 meter, the discus, pole vault, javelin, and the 400. Then that's the end of the day one. And then it's 100 hurdles, long jump, shot put, high jump, and then the 1500. So basically what they did is they did the same running for start and finish on day one and day two, but all the middle events, they switched. Yeah, high jump at the end of day two. That know, will go yeah, well. Jump at the very end, right before the 1500. It like, would be like medium jump. Feet. I know. I. Well, obviously, that's designed to keep your uterus firmly in place. Oh, 100%. <laughs> you know, you got to warm it up with discus and stuff first. You can't go straight into long jump. <laughs> God forbid. <laughs> Why is there a men's and a women's order? So the women's order was put out there so that way if they ever allowed women to do the decathlon at big meets and they wanted to have the multis going out at the same time, then hopefully men's and women's wouldn't collide. But at the um, decathlons I did, they ran men and women separate and it was honestly very easy. We just started like two hours earlier than the men and there were no conflicts. So it was a interesting idea, but the order is so terrible. I, I've literally only heard of one meet that I know of that happened in the women's order and the women got done and they were like, oh my gosh, that was the worst <laughs> thing ever. So nobody likes it. The ones that I've done, I've done the men's order and there's been no scheduling conflicts. Do you know much about why the, the men's decathlon order is the way it is? So kind of like what I said before, day one is for the athletes, day two is for the decathletes. Mm -hmm. Most people that are really athletically gifted or are just starting out in the decathlon tend to do really good day one because it's a lot of power output. I mean, it's the 100 meter dash you end with the 400 meter. Basically, if you're willing to hurt, you know, you got that 400 meter and then, um, Long jump, you know, is very much so just speed, power output, can you pop off? Um, high jump, same sort of thing. Um, just very, you know, it obviously is technical, but it's very 
much so lends itself towards athletic people just because there are a lot of high jumpers, especially decathlon long or high jumpers that they might not be super technically proficient, but they're so powerful and strong. They're able to get away with some technical errors. Um, shot put, same sort of thing. Again, it can be very technical, but there's also a lot of just like grit and push this thing out there as hard as you can. So those are more day one versus day two is discus, which is incredibly rhythmical. It's pole vault, which is tons of technique. You're not going to get away with a ton if you haven't pole vaulted before. Um, javelin, incredibly technical as well to throw that spear. Um, hurdles, you know, which is like the 100 meter dash, but now you've got the technical aspect of hurdles. You can't just be fast anymore. You have to know how to do that event. And you end with the 1500, which obviously nobody likes. <laughs> um, but it's, you know, it's that heart event. It was put in at the very end. And that's literally why it was added was it was the final event. And it was just to prove who wanted it the most, who had the most heart. And that's how you ended day two in the whole competition. Um, so that's kind of why they have it that way. Also, because, you know, day two, you're not going to have as much power output. You're going to have killed yourself day one. So coming back day two and trying to do things when you're neurally and metabolically fatigued isn't necessarily optimal. Okay, so then the heptathlon is not really a decathlon light. because it's Seven events, but it's not necessarily with the same strategy. Correct. So it's a little bit different in that, you know, there are three less events, but also some of the events are different. So you have the 100 meter hurdles, you have the high jump, the shot put and the 200. So you're not running the 400 at the end of day one, you're running the 200. And then day two, you come back with long jump, javelin and the 800, which in my opinion, I don't know who thought we're going to give the woman the 800 and the men the 1500 because the 1500 is harder because it has two more laps. That was terrible reasoning. The 1500 is so much better than the 800. The 800 is the worst event <laughs> of all time. And it was so funny because we got done with the decathlon last time I ran it. And I did it with someone who's been doing a heptathlon since like, oh my gosh. I mean, she's been doing them since I was like born. She's been doing heptathlons. And she got to the end. She's like, I don't know about this 1500 though. This is the one event I've been super scared about. I don't know about this 1500. And I was like, lady, it is amazing. Like we are, we are going to get through this. I promise you. And we got done. And after we all, you know, finished lying on the ground. So she came over, she's like, okay, yeah, that's way better than the 800. <laughs> okay. Why is that? What What's different about them? Well, because one, women do better with endurance anyway, just the way we're naturally built, like estrogen, the way our muscle fibers work, like we are actually built better for endurance type things, just athletically, like in the exercise science field, it's just kind of a known fact. And the 800, like there's a point because you're just almost in a sprint for two laps. And there's a point where you're just screaming at your legs, like run faster. And they just won't like you can be in it with your mind as much as you want. But if your legs, like if you haven't done that kind of training and or you're not prone to that type of work, like you're just dying and like you're working as hard as you can, but you can only go so fast versus the 1500 is definitely more of a mental game. It's not my legs can't handle this anymore. It's just, okay, we're at like a high level of burning, but I can go faster, but I just need to stay here. Like I need to stay in the, like I have to stay here in my mind, you know, and just be willing to hurt for a longer amount of time, but my legs can actually do it. You know what I mean? And so 
especially if you're mentally tough and you're just able to say, yeah, I'm going to hurt for five minutes straight and I'm perfectly fine with that. You know what I mean? Like then you're the 1500 just so much better. So like decathlon is heptathlon over two days as well with that same. So which day has more events? The first day. day. We're on the first day. Yep. So it's the hundred hurdles, high jump, shot put and 200. And then you break for day one and you come back with the long jump javelin and 800. So the way that track and field generally gets scheduled now, because you were saying when they run the men's and women's decathlon, they were concerned about scheduling, but there's no problem with the scheduling with decathlon and heptathlon because we've been doing that for years. Right. It's a very interesting argument because day one, even like you have the hundred hurdles, so you have to run them at separate times just the same way you do the 100 meter dash or the 100 hurdles. Then you go to high jump, which the guys also have high jump that day. And then you go to shot put and the guys also have shot put that day. And then you go to the 200, which the guys have the 400, but you can't be running the four and the two at the same time. So even though guys go straight to long jump and girls go straight to high jump, you still have the conflict with shot put if you all start at the same time. And so you still have to figure out how to use all of those places with the open eventers and with the heps and the decks already. It's just that I don't know why they thought that it would make their lives easier because frankly, it doesn't seem like it would make it much easier <laughs> in order to switch all those events around. It's just going to make all the athletes hate you. <laughs> I like the heps and the decks. <laughs> we have some lingo. <laughs> so most of your competitions though have been heptathlon just because women's decathlon is competed so rarely. Right. So that's what I started out with. So I didn't start track and field until my senior year of high school. Like I just got done with my junior season of basketball. And that's when I started doing track and field. And um, I got thrown into heptathlons right away. So when I went to college, I'd already done them. And uh, like, I just started doing it. My freshman year, I had an injury because of some different things. I didn't have that season. And I remember sitting there and I was like, okay, coach, like you're going to show me pole vault. Like you were going to coach me in this. And he was like, no, I'm not coaching you in pole vault. And I was like, yeah, you're coaching me in pole vault. And then a bunch of the kid athletes, like the decathletes started making jokes that I wanted to like learn about pole sizes and stuff. And I was like, you all can make as many jokes as you want. If somebody, long as somebody teaches me this event. And so after that, like later the next year, he started teaching me pole vault. He caved because I whined enough. And then eventually taught me discus because he thought I'd need it for a, a conference championship. He thought I could help with points. And I was like, you know, why do we even do this? Like, this doesn't make sense. Like, why are we even doing the heptathlon? Like, I've always thought these events were cool. I've always admired the decathlon. So why are we even here? So, yeah, I've done more heptathlons because of NCAA and all that stuff. But I've kind of trained for a decathlon for about three years before I ever even had the opportunity to do one. So what did the coaches see in you or what did you prefer that even putting in these multi-sport events was your thing? I played basketball in high school. I played it since I was like six years old. I played lots of sports growing up, but basketball, I played the longest because that's what I wanted to do in college and a bunch of stuff. So I was in a basketball game um, right after I tried out for the track team, even though track season hadn't started yet. And I went up for a rebound and some big girl pushed me and I sprained my ankle so bad I pulled a piece of the bone off. And I was like, it's fine, just don't stop moving. We're gonna keep going. And I played the rest of the game, but I sprained my other ankle 
And then I got done and both my ankles were like softballs. And my basketball coach was like, I didn't even see you limping. Like, how did you do this? I was like, both of my ankles are sprained. Like what one do I have to limp on? <laughs> no, I'm not limping. And so, um, but then I had to go to track practice and a boot and a brace because of that. And so I got there and he, my, the track coach was like, well, I mean, you seem kind of strong, so we can teach you shot put and javelin while you're in a boot if you want. And I was like, yeah, I mean, throwing spears and giant weighted balls, that sounds fun. Sure. Like, let's go for it. And so I started learning that. And then when I got out of the boot and the brace, he was like, well, you are kind of fast and you can jump. Like, so we're just going to make you a heptathlete. And I was like, I have no idea what that means. I don't know how far it is around a track. I, I have literally no idea what's going on. So sure, that's fine. Um, and I remember getting thrown in the heptathlon and being so confused because I thought that's what everyone did. Like I thought everyone did like track and field. Like I didn't realize that people just kind of like did one event. I thought that like everyone kind of goes and does everything or maybe leaves out one or two things. So yeah, so that's kind of how I got into it because the coach's daughter did heptathlons. It was Blaine Williams. His daughter's Kendall Williams. She's been to the Olympics and a bunch of stuff and he's who coached me. So I think a lot of coaches wouldn't have maybe thought about the multis but he did and I was just willing to kind of do whatever and he was like okay just go do whatever she does I was like okay and I would like walk around and I'm like well she jumps far and she starts from here so I'm gonna start from here next time and I would just like kind of wander around and figure it out so certainly your coach had that that inclination and probably I would think starting track and field as a what 16 17 year old 17 17, you know, it's not like you're 13, you know, 12, 13, I would think that they would specialize more, you know, you were already strong and fast. Yeah. And I think that was kind of the thing too. Like when my mom called him the first time to see if I could even come try out, he was like, Oh, well, you know, 17's pretty old to get started, but I'd hate to miss an opportunity so she can come. I thought that man was going to kill me in my tryout. Like my tryout was three 500s with a girl that went to UGA to run the eight. Like I almost died. I informed my mom the next day while I was in bed that I'd never be getting up again because that was the dumbest sport ever. And my legs hurt so bad. But yeah, just, I think the biggest thing was that he had a multi-event daughter and I was just so willing to jump into anything. Cause I didn't know anything that he was like, yeah, let's just do it. Let's just try it. And just kind of threw me in it all. So then talk to us a little bit about the difference when you specialize versus when you're a generalist and do everything, because at, at some point it seems like the endurance of a heptathlon or decathlon is what win is, is what's prized. I don't know if that's the best word versus I might be able to throw a little bit farther or jump a little higher or run faster. If I specialize, is that, the right way of thinking about it? So I think that it's, it is very interesting because it's definitely a jack of all trades, right? You're not really focused on the one thing, but I also think that there's more crossover than people realize. The biggest difference is training. Like if you're training for hurdles, your training week is so incredibly different than a decathlete's not just because they have nine other events they have to practice but also because your 
what you're training for is so sporadic that sometimes you can't do neurally demanding days if you know that you have nine events that have yet to be practiced in such high volume. So like if you're just a hurdler and Monday is your hurdle day, just like a heptathlete's, well, you might just be able to go hammer, hammer, hammer hurdles super hard on Monday because you're going to come back on Tuesday with a general day, you know, before doing all your other stuff versus if you're a heptathlete, you know, you only have one day. So the mentality might be, you know, oh, I want to go do as many hurdles as I possibly can because I only get one day a week to practice this. But you can't just go do 100 hurdles because Tuesday you got to come back and long jump and pole vault and whatever it is you have set out for the week. So that's probably the biggest difference training wise is that you have to have a super thoughtful and planned out week on how you're going to get all 10 of these events in in a week which is very hard in of itself but also making sure that you know you're doing like metabolic days versus neurally demanding days and all of that tied in not just with general strength but the events themselves so there's both the issue of training the events and then general training Right. So like the days that I need to do general strength work for like to recovery and different things like that. I mean, that's probably the day that I'm also throwing shot put like because that's a more of a metabolically demanding event. It is highly neural, but it's more metabolic than something like hurdles. Um, So just trying to keep all of that in order is also extremely hard because, yeah, like if somebody can jump a little higher than you or throw a little farther than you, but that's all they do, it's still incredibly impressive because I can't do that, obviously, right? But it's also understandable because I have nine other things I train for. Now, for example, sometimes when you do a lot of weightlifting, you lose flexibility. Mm -hmm. So are there things within those events that make other events more difficult? Honestly, the hardest one to train is the 15 and the 800 because nine out of your 10 or eight out of your seven are, well, six out of your seven are, um, are very much so power output, they're neural, they're fast, they're all of these things, right? So they're very type two muscle fibers and you need all of that. But if you go do things like long runs, like milers and stuff do, now you're taking all those muscle type two muscle fibers and you're taking away your elasticity for high jump, you're taking away your power output for your jumps and your runs. So you can't sacrifice the nine in order to train the one really well. So there are some things that make training like the 800 difficult or make training all the other nine events training the 800 difficult, but there aren't many things that you can do to really like make sure that all of them are being addressed and you're not hurting something else, if that makes sense. I also have a question about the physicality because for example, pole vaulters will be very long and willowy. Whereas, say, you know, a discus thrower would tend to be more compact and kind of a stocky build. So do you see heptathletes and decathletes with a broad range of bodies or is there kind of a good generalist body that works for those multi-sport events? It's very interesting. So I actually see more variety in male decathletes than I do in women heptathletes. It seems like women heptathletes tend to have all the same kind of body type. Like you're not going to get a really like skinny, wiry girl usually in the heptathlon. Um, And you're not going to get somebody super big and bulky either because the jumps are so important. You're going to see usually what you would think of as like your sprinter long jumper 
type body in the heptathlon, but that's also because we don't have things like pole vault, right? So you have your javelin, but your javelin is so much your speed of release and your flexibility. It's not so much strength and you have your shot put, but a lot of heptathletes, honestly, they like, like they kind of care about shot put because they don't want to fall behind, but you don't get enough points in the shot put to be like, okay, I really need to hammer bench. Like I got to be strong. Like, so you don't have a lot of them focused on their upper body as much much as their lower body and being that sprinter jumper type build but kind of like I was saying with the training different events like you mentioned weightlifting and losing flexibility like something that's big for pole vaulters is you know lap pullovers and you know lots of exercises like that which great javelin throwers do as well but when I'm doing tons and tons and tons of pole vault and I'm building up all those muscles that does take away my flexibility some for events like javelin and so I tend to be well more like upper body, like stronger than a lot of heptathletes just because I do have things like pole vault that I have to worry about. But I definitely see a wide range in guys just because there's so many events and some of them are just so strong on different ends of the spectrum because you have the more technical aspects and those three more events that really change the game. And you can make up points in different ways and you can be a throwing specialist or a running specialist oh yeah like, i mean i've seen stronger. like lean and wiry but they're awesome at the discus they're fast in the hundred or kind of fast in the hundred they can just run that 15 i mean faster than anyone they can fling a javelin now when it comes to things like pole vault though like my teammate is really really strong and he's you know able to get on those huge poles he can chuck a shot put for forever, like, but his 15, it's like, oh my gosh, like just try and keep up, man. Like just, you know, so it's just, uh, it's an interesting, it's an interesting field to watch for sure for the guys. You talked about points, which is, it's interesting because decathlon and heptathlon are a points system. It's not necessarily your time or your distance or your height or your length jumped translates into a point system how does that work and what events are worth more and less so the heptathlon definitely the throws aren't as valued in the point system as the runs and the jumps which is part of the reason that if you have just like a really good runner jumper you can be like hey we're gonna throw you in the heptathlon we'll kind of teach you how to throw this thing but you're gonna be successful Obviously, is the more serious that heptathletes get, the more they take those throwing events seriously. But for the most part, it's a runner jumper that they're like, yeah, we'll spend some days teaching you how to kind of chuck this thing out there. And <laughs> other than that, you'll be good. But the points are based off of um, world records. It was set a really long time ago what those tables are. And it's like you said, it's not what place you get. So if you go do a heptathlon at a rinky-dink little middle school or you go to the Olympic trials, if you run 12 seconds in the 100 hurdles, you're going to get the points for 12 seconds in the 100 hurdles. It doesn't matter if that was first place, if that was last place, doesn't matter. There's just those points that you get, which is awesome because now it's all based on what you did and it's not based on the competition around you. So it's very, very objective. But the Throws in the decathlon are taken a little bit more seriously just because there is one more of them um, for sure. But then also the points just kind of weigh out better for what the world record is and what men are capable of throwing. So is there strategy involved in terms of I'm going to go all out in one event or another? No. Nope. Because of the point system. No. Okay. No, you just go 
as hard as you can in every event. Okay. Yeah. So I would think there would have to be strategy because you, it is a two, you know, both are two day events. You have to pace yourself is kind of the wrong word, but you know, you got to have enough gas in the tank for that end of the second day. So, I mean, but so much of that comes from training. I mean, I'm on the track like three and four hours a day as it is like, and you're going for a week doing that. So two days of super high output, especially when you've unloaded, I mean, it feels like you put a week in in two days, but you're not by any means pacing yourself because one, nothing's guaranteed. So like you only have three jumps in the long jump, right? Like you don't get finals, you don't get anything like that. And if you foul, you fouled. And so like, if you gave up points somewhere else, cause you're like, Oh, I gotta have gas in the tank for the long jump or whatever. Like there's no guarantees that you're even going to get any points in the long jump if you foul out of them. So you have to make sure the only place, the only place that you can really do anything like that is high jump. Like sometimes um, they'll skip bars. They'll say, Oh, like I cleared this one. I'm going to skip the next bar and come in later. So that way you're not taking a hundred jumps. Frankly, I hate doing that. It scares the living daylights out of me because I'm like, okay, I'm at 500 points. And if I miss the next bar, you know, if I skip this bar and I could have had 550 points, but I've skipped here and now I miss this. It's not like I get those 550 for the bar. I didn't, you know, that I skipped, I'm stuck with 500 points. So it scares the living daylights out of me. So I don't do it, but there's a lot of people that do that where they're like, okay, I don't want to take a hundred jumps because I need my legs to not be fried, but that's really the only place that you can do it in the deck or the hep. So when you're training, for example, when it's a world championship year or an Olympic year and you're, and obviously there's no decathlon in those events, mm -hmm. are you still training decathlon events or are you just doing hep? No, I don't train hep at all. Like I, I kind of do like a little bit like in my run training and stuff, like, and I kind of do 200 meter modeling sometimes and I do 800 meter training sometimes, but for the most part, I'm doing decathlon all year long. And I really have for a long time just because I wanted to do the decathlon for so long, even though I had no opportunities you know, partially because I could help out at conference. So even though I couldn't do a decathlon, if I can go get third in the pole vault or whatever, then like it's worth it for my school for me to be pole vaulting. So even though I'm not training decathlon, I'm training decathlon because my school needs me to be, um, or discus, like I threw discus at our conference championship. So like the only thing I did my last two years of college with the heptathletes was the 800 meter training. And other than that, it was with all the decathletes because I had to do all those open events. But yeah, like even right now, like, or in last year, I, it's a little bit discouraging. I'm going to be honest because I know I could be a much better heptathlete. Like I could have probably gone over 6,000 points and that wouldn't have like been necessarily a challenge because I would have done more 200 meter training because I'm slow as dirt, but I could have done two, 200 meter training. I could have done more 800 meter training. I could have focused on high jump because I wouldn't have been doing pole vault. I could have like, I could do all these things to make my heptathlon better in order to not do the deck, even though I know the deck, I can't go anywhere, but the decathlon is what I love doing. It's what I love training for. And it's so weird going back to the hep afterwards just because I'm like oh my gosh I don't have pole vault and I love pole vault and I don't get to throw the discus and what do you mean I only have three events today like that's so weird like even though I haven't done many decathlons like it's so awkward going back to the head after doing the deck so would you like to see the 
women's decathlon replace heptathlon or be in addition to? Especially right now, addition to. Um, because I mean, there's a lot of elite heptathletes that don't want to change, which rightfully so, right? They're getting sponsorship money. This is what they've always been told that they should do. It's an event they love. It's an event they're good at. So like, there's no reason that they should want it changed, frankly. So I don't think that it's something that should be taken away and like had the rug just pulled out from underneath a whole bunch of heptathletes. But I do think that women have been doing this since like the seventies, I mean, the only reason that we didn't get a decathlon back when they changed it from pentathlon to heptathlon is because of the belief that women couldn't pole vault, even though we were doing it. And so it's it women have wanted this for forever. Um, they wanted the decathlon added, but they just get, you know, little bit by little bit added. And now it's been almost half a century. And for some reason, they still are like, nope, you're not allowed in the decathlon, which is obviously extremely frustrating to women who have been doing this their whole lives and they have no opportunity to go anywhere. Right. I mean, Jill and I are old enough, you're not old enough, but we remember the first Olympic marathon, you know, where the whole idea that women couldn't run the marathon, they could perfectly well run the marathon. Oh yeah. I mean, the never mind the pole vault. Right. And the 800, like, They added, I don't remember which year for the Olympics, but they added the 800 for women. And it bothered the officials so much that women were allowed in the 800 that they took it back out for like two Olympic cycles. Like, so women want this, women race in it, women have raced it in the Olympics, but it bothers the officials so much that a woman could run half a mile really fast that we're going to take it back out. And I think that, I think it's a little bit that same mentality, but also... I really, I really hate it sometimes like for women, especially younger girls that really want the decathlon because they've been told for so long that there are things that guys can do and there are things that girls can do. So by the time they get to the heptathlon, which you don't usually get to until later in high school or until you're in college, I think they're so used to hearing it. They don't even fight it. It's like, oh, I want to play football. Well, no, football is only for the boys. Or, well, now you've turned five years old, so you can no longer play baseball. You have to switch to softball. And, like, I think there's so many little things like that that girls are used to that when it's like, okay, guys do the decathlon and girls do the heptathlon, you're just like, okay. Like, that's – I get told this all the time, like, that I'm not allowed to do what the boys do. You know, and so I think we kind of, like, accept it as normal when a lot of girls are like, no, this is not normal. Let me play football. Let me play baseball. Let me in the decathlon. And they're the ones that usually end up getting in trouble for causing a mess or being hysterical. But So certainly I would expect the change in the United States to be pushed by the NCAA. That's where I would see the switch happening. But is it happening elsewhere as well? You know, are we seeing a lot of European women in their competitions trying to include decathlon? Yeah, so that's so it happens all over the world quite often. Um, there's a U20 girl that just broke the Belgium record. The world record is held by a Lithuanian woman. Um, it, I mean, lots of countries have their IAAF like country record that's been ratified and everything. And they're like, they're they're not doing those events by themselves, right? Like that's the world record holder and the new Belgian record, but there's lots of women that were in those meets, right? And like, they happen quite frequently, but honestly, like pole vault, triple jump, all of those events didn't get started in the NCAA first. They actually happened in masters, which doesn't make sense, right? 
it, it's like, okay, so 40 year old women can pole vault. So now we're going to say the 20 year old women can pole vault. Like it doesn't make sense by any means, but that's always, that's where those events start. And then it trickles down. And part of the reason is because if you start it in somewhere like the NCAA, the NCAA won't do it because they say, if we start this program for women, we are now giving them nowhere to go. Like if we say, yeah, you can do this in the NCAA, but you can't go to the Olympics, you can't go to world championships, you can't go to U.S. championships. They're like, why would we start this program when those women have no future? Um, so it always starts high and trickles low, which, again, doesn't really make a ton of sense. But that's all it totally out. makes sense. It yeah. totally makes sense, because at 40 years old, you're useless. Your uterus is no longer viable. <laughs> Well, it's fine if it falls out right so we got it that's who we tested on yeah. you know, if it falls out it falls out who cares <laughs> it's done it's purpose you, you know it, it has no purpose anymore so fine you're done at 40 yeah, let 45. it fall out yeah, yeah. yeah. who cares Just as well. let's throw them in and see what happens that is really interesting though that it trickles it's almost a reverse trickle we, mm-hmm. we don't want to build the development until there's demand you know for you to go which doesn't make sense because a lot of stuff that we do now is for the children right and it's also weird because then the olympics argues backwards so they didn't do it for the other events necessarily but they argue well why would we start a women's decathlon if we have no women coming in and the Mm -hmm. NCAA says well why would we start it if they have nowhere to go so they kind of go back and forth with that but you can't like once you have an olympic stage then everybody else goes okay (laughs) you know and kind of like starts adding it because now they have a place for them to feed into and the u.s has been having a women's decathlon since i think 2006 and in the masters and just this year there was a usa guy trying to get it in worlds because if it gets to world's masters then that's more of the push for world's just championships and worlds for Olympics. So there is like a good push for that because there's so many women that want it. Um, it's it's very interesting to watch, honestly. Yeah, because I did wonder like where, it, it's the chicken and the egg. Mm-hmm. And the, where, where does the egg need to come out of the chicken in terms of who gets the event? Allison, don't laugh at me. No, I was just thinking Pierre de Coubertin is exactly worried about where the eggs are coming out of the chickens. That's the problem with this whole situation. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. It's, it is, it is so hard and it's especially hard, like having to justify it. And I think that's like one of the weirdest points that a lot of people don't get is that it's like, if I said, I'm not allowed to go to the Olympics because I'm in the decathlon because I'm black or because I'm gay or because I'm Muslim or because there would be like absolute uproar on why, like why you're being discriminated against and why you're not allowed in the Olympic decathlon. But for some reason, when you say I'm not allowed in the Olympic decathlon because I'm a girl, they say, well, do you think you're good enough to like get into the Olympics and that? Is there enough competition? Well, why do you feel left out? You have a heptathlon. Like you like have to justify why you feel like you're being discriminated against when in any other area, it would be like total outrage. It's so interesting to have to like have those conversations because especially when there's like two of us decathletes and we're like standing next to each other and some guy comes up and he's like, well, I don't understand why you guys like want to be doing this or I don't understand whatever. And you're like trying to be polite back and you're trying to like 
like be like, well, this is why, well, women have been doing it for a long time. Well, we can pole vault now. Well, like, and you're having to be nice. And then like, as soon as that person walks away, you just end up looking at the other person like, oh my gosh, like we had to have this conversation again. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. So I also see another reason why the masters get it first, because once you hit 40, you just don't care. Yeah. Right. You don't care who you insult anymore. Cause you're like, it's so what are you going to do? Call me old and ugly? Really? <laughs> so sort of like that, just, you know, I talk about an American society, obviously, because that's what I'm the most familiar with, but sort of the behavior of women significantly changes mm-hmm. when you hit a certain age. You know, you just don't care. And so when people say to you, well, the girls can't do it, you're just like, dude, seriously? No. Maybe. That, that honestly might be part of it because like- it's also hard when you're a girl because you stop getting listened to if you act at any way emotional. So you have to like be super professional and saying like, I'm being discriminated against. And you have to say it like the most level tone you possibly can in any meeting. Cause if you tear up or you get mad or you get loud or you get anything, everyone's like, ah, well, so-and-so is just a hysterical woman. Like we're not going to listen to her. Like, so it's so hard to be like, so like screaming on the inside of your mind, but you have to take it like so over the top professional in order to be listened to at all. Have you and the the women's decathlon movement, what have you learned from the pole vaulters, the female pole vaulters who were, who had to work really hard to get pole vault in the Olympics? Um, Honestly, the biggest piece of advice that they gave us was the master's thing get it in masters because that's where you'll trickle it down. And then you'll see girls start doing it in high schools. Like uh, I think some of them actually started doing it in high schools before it even was widely accepted in colleges, just because then those colleges ended up saying, Oh, we have high school girls and like, you know, pulling it in be, and like now you became a school with women pole vaulters, which made you kind of like progressive. So that was honestly the biggest piece was making sure that it gets into masters. Besides the fact that they're waiting for masters to get this more widely implemented, what kind of things do you hear from USA Track and Field or World Athletics? Are they open to this or, and and it's kind of like, show us how to do it. We're not going to put resources behind it. Or are they like, oh, geez, here are the women decathletes. We have something for them. It's called the heptathlon. So it is very interesting sometimes the overall voice because the overall voice ends up kind of being like one of those, I don't know if you watch Parks and Rec, but kind of like a Leslie Note political speech where it's like half boos and half yays. And they're like, oh, that seems about right. Like, (laughs) that seems like what I was going for. Like that, it tends to be the tone where there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of people that are like pro, like, yes, this is time. It's time for women like to be in decathlon. I mean, even Trey Hardy um, has been pushing it pretty big on Twitter and stuff, which is awesome. So there's a lot of people like that. And USA Track and Field made me USA Athlete of the Week after I broke the American record. And in 2019, that was a sanctioned USATF championships for women. And it was the first one ever. So it seems like the U.S. is trying to like push it as an organization overall because they're allowing it. They're, you know, supporting athletes that do well in it. But it's just so hard on a world stage because obviously the IOC is so different than USA track and field. You have to convince them that for all the countries, this is something we should add. And world athletics as well. There are are a whole other... Yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) 
we won't make you say anything that'll get you into trouble, but if you'd like to. <laughs> it's, not, it's not that I'm worried about getting into trouble or anything. It's just that like you don't want to get upset, like even USA track and field, right? Like, or world athletics. Like I went to the USA championships, right? Like we had a championships for, and it's technically the exact same meet that happened at the blue oval, you know, at Drake, but uh, for the US championships, but like I went and broke the American record. My training partner went and got second and he got to go to worlds and I had to stay home and watch him on TV. Like I didn't get to go. And so it's like, it's a super weird thing where you like don't want to attack the whole organization because you know there are people in there that are supporting it. So you don't want to like just put people on defense and be like, oh, you're discriminating. Oh, you're because everybody's just going to clench up and be like, no, we're not. No, we're not. You know, like and freak out when especially when there are people in there that are trying to help. So I think it's good to acknowledge like, OK, it's not happening, but also there are people that are really trying to help this like come to fruition. How is the pandemic affected not just your training but I mean kind of the movement for women's decathlon um probably just opportunities and the fact that it takes a back seat because there's so many more important things you know what I mean and rightfully so there are a lot more questions like will we even have an Olympics you know much less will we add another event and you know in future Olympics so I think that that's been the hardest part is that there are a lot of closed ears because they're so blind or focused on getting stuff that needs to get done done which is truly important and it's truly a big part of the overall like kind of arcing importance right like that's what we want them focused on so it's kind of hard to balance like okay i know you got important things going on but also like hey listen we still you know are trying to push this um that's probably just the biggest part so going forward paris has already put out its slate mm-hmm so is LA the goal? The goal is actually 2024. That's okay. what the petition is for. I'm going to be honest. I don't know exactly what's going to happen with that. But the goal is that like is to get it in the 2024 Olympics. But the hope is that even if they don't listen, that they will at least be enough noise and enough pressure and enough convincing that it'll happen in 2028. Um, but the goal is truly 2024 to get them to revise that docket, I guess, for the events to add the women's decathlon. Okay, because I'm thinking, does it need to be in the world's first? Like, is that a have to? I don't think it's a have to, honestly. I think it's two different entities, right? And it's it's kind of the same thing. Like, you you know, you have worlds and Olympics, whatever, but... I think that especially if Olympics says we'll change our docket, then Worlds will be like, oh, well, we have to add this now because we have athletes that could be going to the Olympics that we want on our stage. Have you ever heard a guy go, man, I wish I could do a heptathlon? Yes. But really? Only, yes, but only right before the 15. I have, I have heard it, but right before the 15, because for some reason they think that 800 is better and they are, whoo, they are so wrong. And my training partner and my coach, because my coach was a decathlete, they had me so psyched about that 1500 and the mile and like all this stuff. And they're like, Jordan, you're going to get 700 meters in and you're going to wish you were dead after that 700 meter mark. You're like, I got two more laps of this. What? Oh my gosh. Like you're going to hate it. You're going to whatever. And so indoor, I asked my coach to put me in the mile 
because I was like, this summer, if I do a decathlon and I have never, like, I didn't even go to high school. I was homeschooled. Like I've never run a mile for PE. Like I have no idea how to run a mile. And so he threw it in me indoor. And after the 1500 outdoor, I went up to my coach and I told my teammate, I was like, you two are liars. <laughs> like that, that was so much better than the 800. I can't believe you told me that I was going to hate myself and want to die and all this stuff. And so I'm trying to convince my coach and my teammate to put my teammate in an 800 and be like, you run this, you run this, and then you can tell me which one is worse. But until you have run an 800, you cannot tell me which one is worse because I am the only one here that has run both. And I am telling you that the 1500 is better. So you like have no argument until you've actually run the race. <laughs> well, I love what we had someone uh, on who ran the 400 and we were ta talking about the tortures of that, that it's this sprint, but excessively long and you just keep going. It hurts. And I am a person who cannot run at all for many reasons. I can walk extremely quickly. Oh, well, there you go. But the minute you make me jog, I will fall over in like 10 <laughs> steps. So even the idea of 100 is kind of overwhelming to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that 400, it's definitely, and it's like, that's part of my thing is like, especially because I am more muscular, like you build lactate faster when you're more muscular, like because you have more muscle producing lactate. And honestly, like the worst event in the heptathlon is the eight and the worst event in the decathlon is the four. Like those extended sprints. Nope, not for it. Do you have any idea when you'll compete again? Yes. So I think that I'll do um, the Sam Adams meet. Um, that's still a little bit up in the air, but that's what I'm thinking I'll do because again, like that heptathlon decathlon, right? So the um, team USA was thinking about it last year. Hopefully is actually going to let me do it this year. If I go to Thorpe cup, which is the team USA versus team Germany meet that they might let a woman do the decathlon in that meet. And then the Thorpe cup will have incredible bragging rights that they had the first international women's decathlon. Like they allowed a woman in the decathlon on team USA for something. So would you um, be competing in the men's event? So or would they actually have a separate? So I think because they have really weird rules about it, I would be able to do the field events, but I would have to run alone. It's very weird, but also because it might not count for anything, they might just make me run the hurdles separate, but I get to run the four and the 15 and the one maybe with them. So it's, it's a little bit odd on how they're going to do all of that. But the overall arcing like goal, like the over the success is that like, they'll be able to say we had someone on team USA doing a decathlon. That's a woman. In so, an international. And it's, yeah, it's international. It's whatever. So that is the coolest part about it. Again, they kind of had some like thoughts on how they were going to handle the running. Um, because obviously that would just, you know, that would be terrible to have to run the 400 alone. But since it's not trying to qualify for me for anything, I think their only problem is that if I broke a world record. So if I did break any world record and at any point I ran with the guys, then that's considered like an advantage and pacing and like a whole bunch of stuff. So I can't like have it ratified. But as long as I'm not trying to qualify for anything, nobody cares. But like, it's a whole, it's a whole weird issue. So I think like, honestly, that I would have to try and run alone just because if I did break a world record, I would want it to count. <laughs> but so that's a whole different issue. But 
in order to go to Thorpe Cup, you have to go to Olympic trials. And you can't go to the Olympic trials in the decathlon. You have to go in the heptathlon. So that means I have to go do heptathlons in order to try and qualify for U.S. championships, which is Olympic trials, in the heptathlon so I can hopefully go do a decathlon at an event. So it's a very, very, very weird balancing act where it's like I can't even do a decathlon until I qualify and I'm good enough in the heptathlon, but I can't train in the heptathlon super hard (laughs) because I have to focus on all the decathlon stuff. It's a really weird conversation my coach and I have been having all year on how we're going to handle it. My head hurts, Jordan. Right. It's my, mine too. <laughs> Your training plans must be insane. They are. They really are. Out of curiosity, if you could compete regularly, if they had, if they had a meet standard, how often would your body be able to compete in this event? What, like, what do men do? You know, it's actually, it's it's so hard to figure out, especially for me, because I'm more of a workhorse mm-hmm. than like, I'm not a racehorse, I'm a workhorse, I think, which is why I'm better at the decathlon than I am at the heptathlon. So metabolically and like how I'm feeling, it usually takes me like two to three days after a heptathlon to be like, I feel okay. Versus the decathlon, it definitely took me like four or five days to feel like, like, I feel okay. But you can't go do it every weekend because whether you can feel it or not, like your nervous system and just certain things in your body are like so destroyed and so out of whack. And like, you can't feel when your nervous system is tired. Like that's a really hard thing to judge. So there was a point where I did, I did the heptathlon at NCA's. And then I think one or two weeks later, I did the decathlon. And then one or two weeks later, I did the heptathlon at U.S. Championships. So I did hep, deck, hep. And it was much easier to go from the hep to the deck than it was to go from the deck to the hep, obviously. But it was an interesting feeling, like, just trying to figure out, like, especially after that first one, how tired I was going to be. So you definitely need a few weeks before you're able to do another one, like really well, you can do them like kind of back to back, but you're never going to be able to put up the same numbers back to back. Thank you so much, Jordan. You can find Jordan at gritgoddess.weebly.com. And she is grit underscore goddess on Twitter and Insta. We will have links to all of that in the show notes. And you can sign the petition at letwomendecathlon.org, and we will have a link to that as well. We talked a little bit at the end about what comes first, world champs or the Olympics for this event, because one of the things that you and I know is, and we've talked about it here, is that the event program for 2024 is set. And Jordan's group is trying to get this in the the Paris Olympics. So don't know how that's going to happen. Although, you know, boxing's not doing so well right now. Right. They, they might have some space. Weightlifting's might not, might not be doing so well. They might go. So you never know if there just happens to be some athlete quota numbers that come up. But uh, we, we were talking about women's pole vault and it was in the Olympics in 2000. The first world championships was in 1999. So I kind of wonder if it got put on the program that I couldn't find in my research is when Sydney put that event on their program. Right. Because as we talked about in the interview, I have never seen an event that doesn't have a world championships prior Mm -hmm. to appearing in the Olympics. 
So it seems like with pole vault, I knew they had had it. I just didn't know how many times, but it sounds like they just kind of stuck it in at the last minute right? to make sure they had that world championships first, because they do want to have, it seems like the reigning, a reigning world champion mm-hmm. when you go into an Olympic cycle. Yeah. So we'll see what happens with women's decathlon. That's something we'll follow and good luck to Jordan. I think it's a tough road, but it's an interesting road. And it's exciting to hear that women do do decathlon. I know. I never really thought about it much because decathlon and heptathlon are not something that I would watch in, you know, as something that I would point out to watch. Mm -hmm. And now I have to, because now I'm like, okay, so how does this work? (laughs) This is what always happens. You know, it's a, it's a, an event that I will be marginally aware of. If something interesting, you know, that I'll watch on the highlights or I'll, you know, because you can't, you can't, even though we try, you cannot watch everything. You do have to sleep occasionally during the Olympics. But now I want to see the differences in heptathlon and decathlon and how those athletes survive without dying. (laughs) It's really what I want to see. We will be sure to watch. Welcome. To Shukflistan. That's a sign that it's time to check in with our team, Keep the Flame Alive. Our team is the citizens of Shukflistan who have been past guests on our podcast. CEO of USA Weightlifting, Phil Andrews, got engaged on the slopes of Telluride and is planning a late October wedding. That is the best kind of news. That is good. I'm so excited for him. And the dulcet tones of Jason Bryant are going to be in action. Last week, we talked about him being at the Mid-American Conference Championships, but he's also going to be at the NAIA Wrestling National Championships, a Division Three event, the Division One National Championships, and he will be announcing at the USA Wrestling Olympic Team Trials at the beginning of April. Get some rest, Jason. You're going to need it. That's right. Right, that sound means it's time to check in with our Atlanta moment. All year long, we are looking at the Atlanta 1996 Olympics. It's celebrating its 25th anniversary this year. So, uh, Allison, I've got a story for you. I love I love story time with Jill. <laughs> so today we are going to talk about smoking and oh the Olympics. <laughs> well, that's kind of interesting because the Olympic Games and tobacco have had a, an unusual relationship because they were very, very close and there were tobacco companies who were official sponsors of games for a long, long time. There was a long time where they thought smoking was actually good for your athletic yes. uh, ability. Yes. And there are several Olympians who have endorsed cigarettes as well. So they were close until about 1988 when Canada said, uh, we're going to be having the first smoke-free games in Calgary. So they banned tobacco marketing and they had no smoking areas. And every games since then has been, quote unquote, smoke-free. Not, not you know, definition of smoke-free varies. It wasn't until July 2010 that the IOC and the World Health Organization signed an agreement to have t- tobacco-free Olympics. Because it's really hard. It's, it's it's very hard in some parts of the world that are still have some heavy smoking going on to really create a smoke-free games. So looking at you, Paris. (laughs) 
Right. Well, like in Albertville, they distributed ashtrays and Barcelona. Barcelona apparently was kind of a big joke when it came to the smoke free thing because everybody kind of ignored it. And they even gave journalists disposable lighters in their like information packets. And I also read that uh, I think Athens gave out like paper ashtrays to journalists and other other people because they didn't you know they said oh yes we're smoke free but we know that everybody's gonna smoke wink wink so okay so atlanta because we're in the in the u.s and certainly by the mid-90s there was lots of no smoking restaurants and yeah yeah so to put it into context atlanta the organizing committee announced in the fall of 1995 we will be a smoke free games that meant there was going to be a ban on smoking and a ban on advertising of tobacco, uh, including free samples and coupons and other promotional items. But that was really at the venues, and they'd have smoke-free Olympic transport. They'd have designated smoking areas, and then they'd do public health campaigns. So that's fall of 95. Winter 1996, like January, February, is when Jeffrey Weigand blew the whistle on the tobacco industry because... The tobacco industry knew that their products were addictive and that they were actively trying to make them more addictive. And then that turned into a big civil lawsuit with the U.S. government, and that settlement was 1998. So we're still in the beginnings of massive smoke bans. There is no smoking around. Like, offices didn't have smoking anymore inside, I never worked in a smoking office, but I heard stories about it when I was working. I worked in a smoking office. Did you really? I did. Wow. Right out of college, yeah. What was that like? As disgusting as it sounds. I went home every day smelling like I had been to a bar. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, you'd go to a bar, you'd come home, you'd put your coat outside so that it would air out kind of thing. Yep. Atlanta's got the smoking ban, but Philip Morris... R.J. Reynolds, major tobacco companies in the U.S., want to be able to get their footprint, you know, get their paws into those sweet, sweet Olympic dollars. So they do a bunch of ambush marketing. And Philip Morris had this accommodation program. So they called Atlanta a model city of accommodation. So it was creating smoking areas and promoting where people could smoke at hotels and restaurants and other places. And they'd put together these guides and they worked with the Atlanta Convention and Visitors Bureau to put these guides together, have kiosks around, have welcome stations and information booths at key transport points so that they could still promote their brand and, you know, be there for the Olympics. So they had a big footprint going on. R.J. Reynolds also had a big footprint. They took out a whole bunch of advertising, uh, like in uh, Southern Living Living had a commemorative guide to the Olympic South. So they took out a big ad in that. They actually hosted the entire Italian Olympic team to train in Winston-Salem before the Games. Why the Italians in particular? <laughs> or are the Italians big I don't, you know, I couldn't, I, I couldn't find that out, but I did find that detail within a report about the activities going on in 19, uh, with smoking and the games. So you had all these things going on. R.J. Reynolds wanted to give some stuff away. So they had, uh, well, the University of California, San Francisco has a great, their library has a whole 
archive of internal documents from tobacco companies. It's their Truth Tobacco Industry Document Collection. So R.J. Reynolds wanted to uh, do some T-shirt giveaways, and they're like, we've got leftover camel shirts from 1995. Let's give them away in <laughs> Atlanta, yes. And they also proposed having little pop-up convenience stores around that would be small, but still they could like plaster with their branding and advertising. There was advertising everywhere that they could do, like inside and just outside of this Olympic ring of places. So you'd see like taxi cabs, MARTA had ads, all these ads and and accommodation th- uh, guides and things that, that they could do to seem Olympic, but they weren't officially connected with the Olympics. The one legacy of that is that Philip Morris also built eight smoking rooms at the Atlanta airport so that you'd have a place to smoke. And there's still airports around the world that had these smoking rooms, but they branded them. I believe they were Marlboro branded. And those smoking rooms stayed open until January 2nd, 2020. Are you serious? Yes. That's when Atlanta... As smoking rooms? Yes. Uh, yeah. Uh, the smoking rooms at the Atlanta airport remained in place until the second. At the, And that's when the airport closed them because that's when Atlanta voted for a ban on smoking in public places. You know what else the legacy of this is? What? Lung cancer. Probably. Wow. Every time you tell me the Atlanta story, I'm always like, how is that possible? (laughs) All right, we've got just a little bit of Tokyo 2020 news. As we mentioned last week, Yoshiro Mori, the president of Tokyo 2020, resigned. We mentioned there was a potential successor last week, but that was not the case. The person did not take the job. They now have a selection committee in place to choose the new president of Tokyo 2020. That could happen this week. More names keep being thrown about, so we aren't going to name any. Well, they need to move along. They do. I mean, the Olympics are like next week. I I know. I wonder if it's just that they can't find somebody who really wants this job. I mean, they're going right into Mm. a massive spotlight. They're going to get a ton of criticism Probably no matter what they do. We're still in the should they happen, should they not happen. I mean, we're still there. Right. And you still see, uh, besides the polls that say, no, they shouldn't happen, I I did see a a piece of news come across a couple of different sources that said one of the heads of prefectures wants to not have the torch relay. But at the same time, Japan just got the vaccine and they've started inoculating people. So maybe in the next three to four weeks, you'll start to see a change or, or a shift in public opinion. More importantly, a drop in the rates. Hopefully. On a happier note, I want to mention this because it is February. It is the anniversary of many winter games. Mm-hmm. And so I know on my social media feed, and I know you've been sharing things on Twitter of all the anniversaries of various events that have come up. Yes. So we talked about, I rewatched. Torval and Dean from 84. Right. Which just made me happy for the entire day. You had posted, I think, Bonnie Blair's race when she won her first gold medal from Calgary. So we'll be sharing lots of our favorite stuff from February anniversaries. And we'd love to hear 
some of your favorites that come up as they they go along this month. Exactly. And it's been fun on Twitter because there are uh, a lot of people who know a lot about the Olympics and the Olympic history that are in our little circle. And I did not know this, but there was, as part of the Lake Placid 1932 games, a dog sled race. I really want dogs back. I <laughs> I know. This is, this is becoming a theme for me. It, the dogs yeah. need to be back in the Olympics. There you go. So it happened. It could happen again. But Bill Mallon, who is one of the, they call them the only madmen, they collect all these statistics and they've put together a huge statistical database uh, that is just absolutely fantastic. That is his white whale is getting the names of all of those dogs. He's got 10 of them. There's like 72 dogs. Skipper and Spot. <laughs> I don't think he's having a competition to name the dogs. Oh. <laughs> Fluffy. Maybe. That's more of a cat name, though. Not a sled dog name? No. Sled dog name would be like Juno. Could be. <laughs> Wolfgang. Ooh, I like that. Could Killer. Be All right, well, you keep naming names. Spike. <laughs> I'll get ready for next week's show. <laughs> That'll do it for this week. Let us know what you thought of Jordan Gray and what you think of Decathlon not being a women's event at the Olympics. Email us at flamealivepod at gmail.com or call our voicemail hotline at 208 flameit We're Flame Alive Pod on Twitter and Insta and keep the Flame Alive Podcast group on Facebook. Next week, among the things we will talk about, the IOC has released its follow-up to Agenda 2020, which is Agenda 2020 plus five. So we will talk about their new five-year plan and tell you some of the highlights on that, how they think they did on the first agenda. So as we go out to music by Archdale, thank you so much for listening. And until next time, keep the flame alive. Like, yeah, I mean, throwing spears and giant weighted balls, that sounds fun. Sure, like, let's go for it.